Somewhere between waking and sleeping, on our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment where we have one foot in the waking world and the other is in that other world where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness, venting the hot pumice of imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 29 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep, a weekly podcast of curious tales from bordersofsleep.com, featuring original stories by your host, Seymour Jacklin. You can visit bordersofsleep.com for some more information or to leave some feedback, which is always a pleasure for us to read. Artwork is by Robin Trainer, production by Tim Wiles, and the soundtrack for this week's episode is from the album Sun by Dejan Ilyich, and that is available from magnitude.com. This podcast is also available on iTunes. So, if you are ready to journey with me, then I shall begin. Returning Student by Seymour Jacklin In the summer months, the students at the university would go home to help their families on the land during the busiest part of the year, or they would try to find employment in the area. Of the latter, some were well-connected enough to find a use for their wits in tutoring. Others would have to hire themselves for any sort of rough work. Thad belonged to the other sort. He was needed back on the farm and they would be too busy to fetch him, so he'd be walking on his own feet. If he left in the middle of the morning, he could expect to cover the distance by nightfall, so he wasn't in a great hurry. Professor Drumbarrow, Thad's tutor in chemistry, had kindly offered to store his trunk over the summer, so all he would have to carry was a knapsack, into which he'd stuffed a few of his books and a papered roll of oatcakes for the journey. It was unlikely that he'd really have the leisure to read once he got home, but he still fancied himself nestled up in one of the trees he'd favoured climbing as a boy, snatching the time to ponder a few pages. On his way out of town, he stopped by Drumbarrow's house to let him know that he'd arranged for the trunk to be brought over the following day. Thad knew the old fellow well, for he gave more of himself than his contract called for, and he'd sometimes take tutorials in his own laboratory at the back of his house. Neither the professor nor his housekeeper answered the doorbell, but Thad heard a faint, Come in! from somewhere down the hallway, which was populated with trailing and reaching houseplants, reminiscent of encyclopedic portrayals of Jurassic undergrowth. A fitting welcome to the professor's world, for in chemistry it was the manufacture of fertilisers that most interested him, and outside of chemistry he was an amateur paleontologist. Thad found the professor in the glassed solarium at the rear of the house. In spite of the abundant plant growth, here too it was bright with natural light, and his eyes took a few moments to adjust from the gloom of the house. Drumbaru was sitting behind a card table that was strewn with an assortment of fossils. He held a paintbrush in one hand and was delicately dabbing a spot of white enamel paint on each specimen. Thad, said the professor kindly, 
looking over his glasses and holding the paintbrush in mid-air like an artist regarding his model. Sit down, I'll be having some tea shortly. Thad found another chair and drew it up opposite the professor who pointed eagerly with his paintbrush to a flattened, cylindrical piece of rock that dominated the collection, having the proportions of an old family Bible. What do you think that is? he asked. Looks like a cross-section of a pretty big fish, suggested Thad. Stigmaria, said the professor. Most likely a tree root. Thad caught his breath. If this was the root, what was the tree like? He ran the flat of his palm over it. It was uniformly covered in bumps like a fish's scales. Nature has an odd economy of form, he said. What do you mean? asked the professor. Well, it reuses the same motifs in a million variations that make a tree root akin to a fish's belly, and yet it never repeats itself. Indeed, mused the professor, but I challenge you to imagine how it could be different. Thad couldn't. It seemed that his imagination could only repeat the themes that his eyes had already perceived. The professor poked one of the smaller fossils across the table. Look at that. Thad took the tiny ammonite between finger and thumb. It was heavy and metallic, with perfect dorsal symmetry, coiled like a pastry and ridged like a ram's horn, the cast of a seashell some three hundred million years old. It's like a jewel, he commented. It's iron pyrite, fool's gold said the professor. You find them on the southwest coast. They will polish like gold, but soon tarnish. You may keep that as a memento, young man, for it's unlikely that your remains will be so beautiful in a few million years' time. Thad thanked the professor and slipped the ammonite into his pocket just as Mrs. Cornsay came in with a tray of tea. Half an hour later, Thad took his leave and thanked the professor for his kindness and the tea, and the professor wished him a fair summer, and said he looked forward to seeing him in the autumn. As he took the road west, out of the city, Thad felt as light as a seed blown from the head of a dandelion. Although he'd come by horse and cart on the road, he knew there was a short cut by foot. On the western horizon was a pair of hills, like the outline of a flat distant piece of stage scenery. In fact, the leftmost lay about four miles beyond the other, and Thad's parents grew potatoes and beets in the valley between them. About two miles out of town, the road turned north, but a narrow footpath continued west and dropped rapidly into a valley. As Thad followed it, the hedgerows all but closed over his head. He lost sight of the hills and found himself descending into a fragrant bowl of herbage warmed by the June sun. To his light spirit came an intoxicating salad of summer scents, and after a few hundred yards, the sequined shimmer of water pierced his gaze, throwing coils of light up its banks. The path crossed the river on a small wooden footbridge, the detail of which will remain unremarked, for in his dreamy state a very strange sight confronted him at the river. There was a low waterfall about fifty yards upstream. Between the bridge and the waterfall, a man stood on a rock, naked, and facing upstream with his arms outstretched like a worshipper. 
Thad turned aside and quietly worked his way up the bank, keeping hidden. As he came up alongside the man, he heard him begin to shout at the top of his voice. Come and overwhelm my little world, and bear me in the arms of your flood. Let the waters bear me up. I'm ready. The man was yelling at the waterfall, and his voice bounced around the rocks and took on a muddy tone such that he could hear the slightly shrill shout of the man and his sonorous echo simultaneously. Overthrow me! Bend and bow me like a bark boat and straight arrow overthrow me! Tumble me in bubbles and turn me over like an eel, head over heel, down the waters, down your throat. As the man shouted, Thad felt the river growing a little wilder and backed up the bank a little, for it seemed to be rising too. Carry me away with moss, stick and stone, wash, scour and dash until I have gone. Too long have I fled on the flotsam and gnawed on the waterlogged wood. Come, river, my bones are made from what you have given. If I sink now or swim, you'll have my living. Now there was a loud rumble growing above the waterfall, louder and louder, a frightening sound that had Thad scrambling up the bank as fast as he could with no further thought to stay hidden. Fragments of the man's shouts reached him. Flood for my blood! Torrent of cold! Thad glanced back and saw the waters had risen to boil at the man's feet, and in the next instant there was a mighty crash. Upstream a deluge broke over the crest of the waterfall like a stampeding herd of white horses and cascaded down towards him with their hooves churning. The man was knocked off his feet, and Thad had a brief impression of his limbs cartwheeling in the foam. The advancing wave caught the bridge and broke it with a great crackle of timber, carrying it away. Behind the flood, the river flowed fat and smooth with enormous strength, but suddenly silent. In the wake of it, he thought there was laughter bouncing now between the rocks, but growing fainter downstream. The whole incident had taken less than a minute, it seemed, but in front of him now lay a wide, swollen flood, and no way of crossing it. But for the very real and practical difficulty that now faced Thad in continuing his journey, he would have thought it had all been a dream. He needed to find another crossing place. Thad followed the bank of the river as best he could, working his way north, but it became steeper, threatening at times to become an impassable gully, and the torrent still smoothly slicked beneath him as if it was hungry to carry him off too. Several times, Thad stopped to listen, for he thought he heard another rumble, deeper than the rivers, more felt than heard. It was a little unnerving, and he had a sense of having stumbled into a nightmare in broad daylight. At one point, he lost his footing and slid with a cascade of rocks that gave him no more traction than falling water would, and brought him to the very edge of the river that was running deep and black. I'm not thinking straight, he said aloud. But as if in answer to his words, he felt the rumble again. The rubble under his grazed palms began to shake and slip and tumble over the edge into the water. Expecting to see another wall of water crashing towards him, Thad began to scramble upwards, but the bank seemed to be folding over him like the edge of a bowl and rushing towards him. Dust fell into his mouth and eyes, and he lost any sense of up or down except that physics told him if he lost his footing, he'd go down and towards the water. So he tumbled, waiting for the splash, the shock of cold and the inexorable undertow to take him down. But it never came. In fact, the rumbling died away and he came to rest, lying on his back on dry land, 
he could still hear the sound of the river. Turning his head to the left, he was looking upriver. He recognised the banks on either side, but somehow he was in the middle of it. Turning his head to the right, he stared straight into two empty eye sockets in an ashen face. He screamed and got to his feet like the crack of a whip uncoiling the reflex of his fear. And the moment he stood to his feet, he appreciated three things in quick succession. Somehow a part of the bank had collapsed into the river and dammed it. He was standing in the middle of the new dam and the water was coming up fast. His bag was nowhere to be seen, and the face he'd been lying next to had been decapitated from a marble statue and brought down with the debris of the collapsed bank. It looked like a piece of genuine antiquity, although the rest of the body was not in sight. In any case, the way was clear, and he could cross to the other side of the river on the dam, but not for much longer. He staggered over to the opposite bank and pulled himself up on his hands and knees. This side was mostly damp and slippery boulders, and he didn't stop climbing until there was soil under his hands, and it levelled out. He looked back down to see that the river had overcome the collapse, and was flowing again, but some of its anger had gone, and the severed marble head looked up at him through waving lines of water. He collapsed, and lay panting, overcome with exhaustion and relief, but after several minutes he found that he was dozing off and not wishing to fall asleep anywhere near the river or to delay his journey any more, he got to his feet and worked his way south until he found the path again. It soon seemed as if it really had been a dream, although he had only to feel the pain of his torn skin and grazers and the lightness where his knapsack had been to know that the whole ordeal had been real enough. How much easier it would have been to open himself to the torrent's embrace and take his chances in the water than to try and fight it and hold his path as he had done. Still, he had a family to return to, and studies to continue, and all of a sudden he knew that he wanted to see his mother again more than anything else in the world. With every step he took homewards, he felt lighter. It didn't occur to him to hunger for the oatcakes that he'd lost in the landslide, for it felt as if the journey itself had become his food. He came at nightfall to the first furrowed field of his own dear homestead. The path into the property was marked by a single tree, and as he passed under its boughs, he looked up at the memory of himself, sitting there with his legs dangling down, gazing out and reading the landscape like a book. His father was standing in front of the low cottage where he'd been born, sharpening his tools and laying them upon a stretch of canvas. As Thad came up to the house, his mother appeared in the doorway, and the three of them embraced and made the awkward small talk of people who somehow know that they have much more to say to one another, but not how to say it. Mother immediately noticed that her boy needed fattening up. His sallowed face was not ready to be bowed over potato rows, or his paled hands to pull beets. She saw to it that there was as little chatter and as much eating as possible at the table. Thad was glad to see them, blissfully glad, but found few words anyway. But a day's journey was a world away, the world of university. And such a day's journey as he still had to ponder, for he felt as if he'd grown more in the last span of daylight than in the whole academic term. But he didn't have words for how. After Mother had gone to bed, his father asked for some sort of account, to which he was entitled, 
for all he'd supplied his boy with the means to get an education. So, my boy, uh, what, what have you learnt in your first year at university? he asked. They sat and talked until they could barely keep their eyes open, and Thad said he'd like to go and fetch something from his room, but he didn't return. His father heard him snoring, and he took himself to bed too. They would all be rising at four in the morning and getting down to work. As he lay down next to his wife, she stirred. Has he learnt anything? she asked her husband sleepily. I wasn't able to find that out, he grunted. He seems to have plenty to say about fossilised roots and how we can't choose whether our bones are beautiful or not, and oh, something about crossing a river instead of going down with it, and garbled speculation about decapitated statues and lost books and the journey being its own food. Nothing to do with university as far as I can make out. But he has changed. He seems to have learnt something along the way.